welcome back to the Dharma Toolkit podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. This week we have a very special episode for you, one of our occasional archive episodes featuring some fantastic audio from usually a live event, sometimes a Dharma presentation or conversation. And this week, an event launching the Karna USA project, a very exciting project picking up on work done over many decades in the UK and Europe and India, raising an amazing amount of money for all sorts of work in India, partnering with local organizations, serving local communities to make people's lives better and to work particularly against the blight of the traditional caste system in India. You'll hear a lot more about that during this episode of the podcast. It features many voices, including a good number from India itself. It's presented by Ananta and Samaya Shri, the co-founders of Karna USA, who can introduce all the voices to you, tell you about the work that's already happening and how you can help relieve a tremendous amount of suffering and also bring a tremendous amount of hope to people in India. So without further ado, here is the live recording edited for Concision with Karna USA, live from New York City in November 2021. I hope you'll enjoy. Hi, everybody. So really warm welcome to this launch of Karna USA. It's really great to see you all and to be at this point where we're launching. My name is Ananta. I'm right now in New Jersey, but I'm based in New York City. And I'm the CEO, co-founder of Karna USA alongside Samaya Shri, who's been working very hard with me to get this set up. And there are a lot of people here that I could call out as well, who've been incredibly supportive in helping us to get to this point of launching today. I want to start by sharing five things with you about Karana USA. So here we go. The first one is that we are here. We are here. Karana USA exists. We're a sister entity to Karana USA and Karana Germany. And we've been set up with the generous support so far of Karana UK. And like those other Karanas, we're going to work to ensure that marginalized people, downtrodden people have access to a decent life, decent opportunities, regardless of their status, regardless of the discriminations that are held against them. Secondly, we will support the work in South Asia. So we'll continue, we'll build on the incredible work in South Asia, that's India, Nepal, Bangladesh, that the other Karanars, Karana UK and Karana Germany are, are currently supporting. So this is education for discriminated against children, empowering women, livelihoods, support so poor people can have access to a decent wage, decent living. Thirdly, we're going to support work in the USA. So this is a real innovation. We're going to support work in the United States. So when we were developing Karen R USA, our thinking was that we really want to continue the good work that Karen R does, following its values and the model, build on the success. But we really wanted to look in our own backyards, not just across to Asia and to, and to look at what's happening over there, but what can we learn and apply right here in our own backyard? So over the next six months or so, we're going to be running a process to look at what that work could look like. So part of what we're going to be doing in today's event is also to look at and have an exploratory conversation of what does this program of work look like? Could it look like in the United States? Because we're really wide open and, and you'll hear that. So we, we're not quite sure what it's going to look like, but we're really excited to see how it could look. Fourthly, we're going to be a tree rat led organization based on team-based right livelihood principles. 
So we really want to build a robust values-driven organization, a supportive practice. We really believe in, in team-based right livelihood. Um, we want to walk our talk when it comes to organizational culture. And yeah, we want to explore what that looks like in 21st century America. So we're really excited about this. Um, we've got ambitious plans to, to grow and to develop. And so we really want to build Karen USA out to create a, a robust, thriving organization that is, is run on um, these principles. Fifthly, we'll mobilize people across North America, in the United States in particular, to become supporters. So we'll actively fundraise from various groups to be champions of our work. And we're starting with you. We're starting with our tree Ratner community. And we need you to donate. We need you to support us, to help us get off the ground, to give us a fighting chance of growing and to being able to be responsive to the needs of the, the different partners and to really help us get a firm footing so that we can start employing those people to help us build out the organization. We can start supporting partners in South Asia and the US in a really meaningful way. So there'll be some links about how you can not only donate to us, but also follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, because building out our social media presence really helps when we get to things like digital marketing, which is something that we'll be doing. So even if you never look at us again on Facebook, just please, if you could go and like us, because it will help us to build up the numbers. So today's event is about sharing and diving into these five key messages with you. So next, we're going to hear from Padma Darka, who's the CEO of Karanai UK. He'll give us an overview of Karanai's work, how incredible it is, what an impact it has. Then we'll hear a more personal exploration of that from two Indian friends, one Sanganath who works in Karanai UK and another Pratibha who works in Karanai Germany. Having explored the work more in, from the South Asia perspective will then shift to this discussion about what Karanar could look like in the USA. So Vimla Sara will lead us in a panel discussion with four incredibly talented and inspiring people to explore what are the discrimination issues that are equivalent to caste that we could be focusing on in the USA and what role could we as Karanar be playing. Then you'll have a chance to question the panel, anything that's coming up. And then we'll close in just under a couple of hours time. So I want to just move now into introducing Padma Dhaka, who's a long-standing friend of mine and who befriended me about 20 years ago when I first started going to Pamaloka. Yeah, he's been a really dear friend ever since. And he joined Karanar in the UK right as I left after five years of work at Karanar UK, which was a shame because I would have loved to have worked alongside it. But I did grill him. And his, he reminds me often that I did used to grill him a lot after I left Karen UK because I wanted to know what was going on. Who are you funding? You know, what partners are doing what and what decisions are you making? Because I really cared about it. And I think that's probably why I've come back to it. And he was very generous in his responses and I think tolerating me in my questioning. So really warm welcome to Pamela Darker and thanks for all the help you've given us in, in supporting and setting up Karen USA. So over to you, Pamela Darker. Hello, everybody. Greetings from Norfolk, which is in the east of England in Europe. Hello to you wherever you are in whatever time zone you're in. For some of you, it's very late at night. Uh, for some of you, it's very early in the morning. So thanks for coming along to the event. I'm really, really, really excited and delighted. And I kind of can't believe that this is actually happening. After many years of quite dreamy conversations that Samaya Shree and Ananta and I have been having about giving birth to this project 
We're actually launching it and I'm really thrilled that we're able to do this tonight and that so many of you have come to do this with us. I'm going to just talk quite briefly about Kauna UK. The focus of tonight obviously will be on setting up Kauna USA, but Ananta asked me to give a very brief overview of Kauna UK. So Kauna was born when a group of Ordem members from the UK met with a group of Bante's followers in India in the late 70s. This eventually led to the Indian wing of the order establishing social projects in slums in Nagpur and Pune, and order members in England establishing what became the Karana Trust. So 41 years later, we're here launching Karana USA. So Karana UK exists to end caste-based discrimination, poverty and inequality in India, Nepal and Bangladesh. The caste-based discrimination severely affects the lives of hundreds of millions of people globally, but especially in South Asia. Karana's overall approach is that we work with local in-country partner organizations and we are partner-led. So what that means is that Karana UK does not create projects. We don't invent solutions to problems. We can't from our base in the UK. But we're very good at working closely with grassroots local partners who know the problems in their communities, who know the people that need support, and who come to us with fantastic proposals. So we work together in collaboration with these partners. So we're a partner-led organization. And that's a very, very important feature of how Karanar works. It's, it's crucial. Our approach is based on the premise that when an individual's life changes, they can change their community. And when the community changes, they can change the rest of society. So all of our work starts with individual transformation, leading to collective transformation. And Karana supports organisations as well to form networks amongst each other so that they can build a critical mass, share experience, become more effective. And some of our networks are really fantastic. I can't, in the time that I've been given by Nanta, and I've promised I won't overrun, I can't go into any detail whatsoever. It's a bit like I'm describing my favourite restaurant and I need to tell you every dish and every ingredient. You'll have to take a look at the menu yourself, which is the Karanar website. So maybe during this, you could look up our website and take a look at some of our dishes. But broadly speaking... Our work focuses on education, which Ananta has mentioned, and the focus there is on supporting Dalit and tribal children who would be at risk of dropping out of school to stay in school and complete their education. Second focus is on dignified livelihoods. So this enables people to break free from traditional caste-based occupations, which maybe Sanganath and Pratibha will touch on locks people into occupations that have very little prospect and in many cases are quite degrading. So the Dignified Livelihoods Programme offers alternative and more dignified ways of earning a living for people. 
And finally, we work on gender equality. So this is providing leadership and skills, enabling women to become leaders in their own communities, to assert their choices and to empower others. Now, over the last 20 months since COVID has arrived in our lives, and COVID has had a devastating impact in South Asia, our focus has been on emergency relief work. And last year, our partners in India and Nepal worked with over 350,000 people. So that's the scale that we've been operating on, particularly during the COVID era. So it's quite big. Now, how we do things is as important as what we do. So I think Ananta mentioned one of the aims of Karana USA will be as a team-based right livelihood. So we have 23 full-time staff based in the UK and one in Germany. And team-based right livelihood means we meet for weekly meetings. We have regular meditation and practice sessions. And next week, we're going on our annual team retreat for a whole week. And it's the first time in two years that most of us have seen each other. So we're all very excited to be going on retreat. More than excited, we're thrilled, fizzing with enthusiasm. So that's a little bit about team-based livelihood. So thanks for listening. I'll be here for the whole event and I'll pop up again, I think, in some of the later sections so I can answer any questions. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much, Pat Madaka. So we're still in this area. Like, so if you remember my points at the beginning of sharing that, you know, one, we're here and two, we're going to be focusing on the work in South Asia. So we're going to spend a little bit more time on the work in South Asia by hearing from two friends from India who work for Karanar in Europe. So one of those is Pratibha, who works for Karanar Germany. She is from Northern India and is currently in Northern India. So I'm just thrilled that she was willing to spend the time with us today, this evening for her, because it's about 11 p.m right now and it's Diwali so it's like a Saturday party night and she's choosing to be with us which is a great honor so she's been living in Germany for seven years and she works for Karenite Germany and she holds two master degrees in the field of gender and public policy and has worked in research as well as the development sector so we've been really lucky to have her supporting the Karenite work the other speaker right now is Sanganath who is from a small village in Maharashtra state India where he attended one of the educational hostels that Karanar supported. And so he got involved with Tree Ratna when he was seven years old. So long-standing involvement with our movement. And he went on to then work for Karanar sponsored projects in Pune, the educational work. And then he moved to the UK, first working with Windhorse Trading, and he got ordained at Gukhi Loka in 2008. And then about 10 years ago, he moved to Karanar. So he's seen all these different, it's really fascinating, the different areas, dimensions of Karanar's work, from being a recipient and a client of Karanar's work to now supporting, leading Karanar fundraising appeals and his role as a supporter, recruitment manager. He also has a three-year-old son who he loves dearly, and I think he loves more than cricket, although I'd need to ask him more personally if that's the case. So thank you both again for joining us. And Pamadaka mentioned about Karanar's focus on tackling caste-based discrimination. And I wanted to just ask you both a, a question around that. So you as the audience might have an idea of what caste is, or you might know very little about it. So there's a traditional definition of society is graded into different castes. If you're at the top, if you're the priestly caste, 
you're the superior one, you have like superiority over everybody else. If you're at the bottom, you do all the menial work and the menial labor. That's a very simplistic description of it. And it's morphed a lot in modern society. So my first question to each of you is, what do you see as the characteristics of caste? And how does it operate? And how have you seen that in your life, in your experience? So Pratibhara, I could turn to you first to respond to that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Already apologies if you hear busting crackers because we are still in the Diwali mode and it's still going on. I think for me, if you really ask me about what does caste mean to me and how I've seen and witnessed it in India, I think something that we all can relate to from last year, the buzzword social distancing So the social distancing has been going on in India for thousands and thousands of years. So we have communities living in India, which actually are also the majority in India, who have been socially excluded. People have socially distanced themselves from for thousands of years. What Ananta mentioned, it's also too simplistic to say that when a certain person is born into a caste is kind of damned to be in that caste and in that particular job or frame of job that's assigned for this person. Because I think in a society like India, which is so complex, there are many crisscrosses, many intersections that run through caste. And I think that's also the approach of Karuna that I really like, that we do tend to identify these intersections with gender, with class with your ethnicity, the region also sometimes where you come from, all that kind of runs through caste. So that's very important to keep in mind to identify the most vulnerable group, right? And another thing that I would also like to mention is that even if we ourselves try to get rid of the system and try to work towards it, there's so many people, for example, the politicians are also During the British colonial period, this was a system that was solidified. When census came, for example, people were identified as high and low. They were divided into these stratas. The system is still going on. And of course, politicians also use this for vote bank politics. So even if we want to go through an inner structural cleansing of India, there's so many vested interests who kind of benefit because, as I mentioned, there's a clear elite minority that's still suppressing and oppressing the people who are the majority of India. Personally, I do consider myself as a casteless person, just as many other leaders that we had. Ayutitas, for example, who was the leader of Tamil Buddhist movement, he identified himself as caste, and people like Ambedkar, who I'm sure many of Karuna supporters are also aware of, were inspired by him. And uh, there are still people who work towards it. And personally, even though I consider myself as a casteless person, the institutions do not allow me or anyone, I would say, to be identified as such. So you have this institutional casteism, casteism in the society where you're forced to, you know, it's visible in your name. It's visible from the professions you come from. Thank you, Pratibhar. I mean, I'm sure we're all making mental connections with casteism and the way society is structured here in, in North America. And it's really helpful to hear you lay that out. Also, the social distancing analogy, I think that's a really visceral and a really clear description of how it must feel to have caste practices used against you. 
Sanganath, would you mind sharing a few thoughts around what caste is and how it operates? Yes, yeah, definitely. Good to be here, actually. It's good to be doing with Pratibha as well. She's my good friend. I wish I could be in India, Pratibha, celebrating Diwali right now. Pratibha really expressed, summarized the caste problem, the caste system in India really well, actually, Pratibha. And the way you express the social distancing, that's exactly some of my friends in the UK has told me. They can now imagine how untouchability looks like, feels like in this situation. Dr. Ambedkar said caste is now attitude. It's not just to do with religion or the system. It's, it's a became attitude in people's mind. Give you some example to understand caste. It's complex. It's really complex. But as Pratibha said, it still exists and it still exists in all aspects of Indian society. Not just one aspect, all aspects. So give an example of marriage, for example. Inter-caste marriage still difficult in India. My friend Amol, we grew up together. Really, he fell in love with higher caste women when they were in university. They decided to marry. They said if she told her parents, they will kill her. They have to run away that hide and get married somewhere. After 10, 15 years' time, their parents said they're coming back and meeting them. So, for example, the caste, it's really deeply rooted in things like that, marriages, for example. One thing people don't understand. Almost everyone in India have a caste certificate. You have to show caste certificate, which caste you belong to, in order to get some facilities in government. Yeah. So I had a caste certificate in India when I was in India. Fortunately, I don't have now because I'm British citizenship. But caste certificate is really essential in the Indian situation. I can give so many examples how my mother was treated in the village. Even she used to work in farm owner and farm owner didn't touch us. Separate cups and plates and so on. You know, the caste system is existing, even that level of caste existed in India in some places. You know. So that's a little example in the glimpses of caste system. And yeah, I wish we could have more time to talk about that. Yeah, let's, thank you. Uh, I wish we could yeah. have some more time as well to dive more deeply into this. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the next question is around Karanath's work and where you've seen it made a difference. So maybe Sanganath will, will continue with you. You're a direct recipient of Karanath's work and you've transitioned from being a recipient to now being someone who supports the work through raising funds. So yeah, how have you seen it make a difference? Yes, when I was growing up in India, in southwest of India, I grew up in a small village. Corona is one of project actually came to my village called Ashwaghosh, the cultural activities for kids, teaching them songs and dramas and street plays and things like that. I was very much interested in that project when I was a kid. I loved it, you know, going on and expressing myself, thriving in my imagination and vision for my life. That's how I come across in first place Corona project in my village. And then... Just nearby my village, there is a still actually Corona's educational hostels for kids. I made a strong connection with that project. I used to go and spend time with them. I still do actually. Whenever I go back to India, I still go and visit that project. So that's the first place, first time I saw Corona's work. And then later on, I moved to a place called Pune. It's a big city in Maharashtra where I used to work in slums and so on. Yeah, I mean, I could say a lot of earlier. I mean, I personally benefited and grateful for Corona's work. There are so many different aspects of Corona's work in India exist, which I feel very, very inspired. For example, Karate Project, which I involved with as well early on. You know, Corona's project is amazing, giving confidence to kids and women and girls. And that project, if you see now, thriving, really thriving. There are so many like 
20, 25 black belts exist now in, in India. So that's a little bit my experience of Corona's work. Yeah, thank you. I love the empowering nature of it. You know, it's not just kind of trainings, which is still very important, and the more, say, technical stuff around educating kids, but the real giving them life skills of how to defend themselves and how to find confidence through the arts and through martial arts. Pratipa, how have you seen the impact of Karana's work changing people's lives? I think just what Padmadaka highlighted in the beginning, it's partner-led. And, you know, it's it's really making, they're not like mere passive recipients of a program, but they're active change makers. So they're actively participating. The people, the partners we work with come from within the communities we want to work with, well, mostly. And it's a bottom-up approach. I have met these girls who provide legal support in their communities. And even though they come from really small towns where there's no proper infrastructure for them to take a bus and go somewhere, but they're still somehow doing it. They're trying to reach other women. They have themselves also faced harassment, sometimes also rape and death threats, but they've overcome it because there are these projects like the Maitri Network, which also is such a vast network of people bringing people together and building strength. And it's also multi-pronged approach. So it's not only, okay, we'll go and train the women to be legal advisors. No, it's also working with the men to raise awareness. It's working with the community, the government organizations. It's working with the one-stop crisis centers who are the first line of response when women face violence. So it's a whole plethora of various sectors, I would say. And that's how you tackle a problem. Yeah, yeah that holistic approach. And Hamadaka outlined before the way that Karen R approaches, you focus on transforming an individual's life and then you work on a community. And then like in this Maitri network, you bring together, in this case, a group of women leaders to try and tackle these problems at a bigger scale. And that links to the next question, which I want to just ask you to do. This is an impossible question, and I'm really sorry for doing it with just four minutes left of our time together, which is to do with Dr. Ambedkar, because that model has its root in Dr. Ambedkar's vision for social change. You start with the individual then communities, and that way you transform society. So if you could just give one or two points each, and this is the impossible part, of why Dr. Ambedkar is important, why is he such a central figure in the work that we're doing? Yeah, it's difficult to describe Dr. Ambedkar. The first thing is really, you know, when you think about corona, it's about ending caste. You know, that's our vision. We'd like to see the community where no caste, yeah? And that's exactly Dr. Ambedkar has done. He has challenged that fundamental problem in India. And that's his vision to see the casteless society. But where Dr. Ambedkar does it, not with violence or not with reaction, he does with peacefully. He does with really interesting way of dealing with problem. That's the great, great example of actually how you can change the society and caste. That's why it's so important. He's tackling this incredible difficult problem with incredible intelligent and spiritual vision for life. Yeah, that's why, why I think Dr. is so important. Second thing is, I think, something we really take for granted, which is the democracy of India, the constitution of India. It's not easy to build. It's not easy to come together. Dr. Ambedkar has done incredible good work with writing this constitution of India. And I think my personal opinion, we can protect this constitution as much as we can. You know, there might be people who want to change in the future, 
but the constitution of India, it's serving so many millions of people in India. If constitution wasn't exist, then problem of India will be still even bigger. You know? So there's something about constitution, even there's a, people are misusing constitution, which still, I think, that's the greatest gift of Dr. Ambedkar has given to India, which is the Indian constitution, democracy we need to protect. Thirdly, just very briefly, because we are three ethno organization, his example of an engaged Buddhist is incredible. He's 21st greatest Buddhist example, as Bhante Sangharakshit said. His example of a Buddhist is incredible. It's a good introduction to Buddhism, how Buddhism, Buddhists can change society. Yeah. Thank you, Sanghanath. Fantastic. Thank you. Prasiva? Sanghanath has already said a lot. I'll keep it very short, very short two points. I think Ambedkar, as opposed to other reformers of his times, he was not interested in merely the social issues at the superficial level, but he wanted to completely eliminate the root causes of these problems. And that's why he's a very inspiring figure, because the root causes for him was the religion, was our scriptures, where the caste is written. So he wanted to eliminate that. Second, educate, educate, educate. You know, education is very, very important. He held it very dear to himself. He himself was such an enlightened and educated person. And I think when a person is educated, all the other factors fall in line. So I would say that it's so important for us at Karuna because of these two things. Thank you so much. And Vimala Sara just put in the chat one of his slogans, which is educate, agitate, organize. And, you know, just to join up some of the dots that we have is he was an incredibly educated man. He facilitated the education of many Dalit people. And as Saganath was saying, he drafted the Indian constitution as the first law minister of independent India. So we have that as the legal framework to try and access rights. And we have his incredible spiritual example, which we are trying to live up to. And many Indian Buddhists also take as their inspiration. Thank you both. Like you said, I, I'd be really happy to continue discussing this. It's so, so fascinating. But we're going to move on. But really, really warm thank you for joining us and sharing some of your thoughts and experience. Thank you. And Pratibha, enjoy Diwali. We're going to make a pivot now. So we've been looking at the work in South Asia, and now we're going to look at what it could look like in the United States. And to do this, we're going to have a panel discussion and I'm going to hand over to Vimala Sara, who's going to facilitate and introduce the panel. Vimala Sara is the chair of the Vancouver Sangha and she's a public speaker, master trainer in the field of conflict transformation, leadership and mindfulness. She's an author of 10 books and co-founder of Eight Step Recovery and an incredible person. So I'm really delighted that she's here. I just want to yes. point out that Vimala Sara uses they or them pronouns. Sorry. That. Thank you, Viveka. Thank you. So I'll hand over to Vim Lasara. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and, and asked to be part of this amazing day. And I just have a lot of gratitude for the stories, their wisdom that we've heard from our Indian siblings today. And I just wanted to say that I trained in my physical theatre and, and my teacher would say, if you have an idea and nobody's got it, it's most probably a crap idea. But if you have an idea and lots of people have got it, then it's most likely a good idea. And I want to say this is a great idea because over the past few months in certain circles, in academic circles, in activist circles, there's just been this renaissance of Dr. Mbeka's work. 
And so it's just fantastic that Tree Ratna North America is really launching this project. And I want to say that it's fantastic. It's because for me, it's moving away from this missionary taint that we actually do have as Tree Ratna. We're sometimes seen as missionary. And it's because we never look in our backyard. And what's different about this project Tree Ratna North America, this project that Karuna wanting to do is not just looking in what's happening in India, but actually looking at discrimination happening in our backyard, looking at discrimination and how it plays out in the US, how it plays out in Canada, how it plays out in Mexico. So I'm just really excited about this. And I want to stress that this is our project. It's a Tree Ratna project. And as I look on the flat screen, this includes most of you. So I just really hope that you get behind this. So as Ananta said, we're going to have a conversation looking at and exploring the intersectionality perhaps of Mbeka's work or casteism in India and the US. So I just want to introduce our panelists. I'm going to introduce Haresh Dalvi, and apologies if I've mispronounced your name. Haresh was born in a family of Dalits in Mumbai, India, and later converted to Buddhism. And I think this is really important because that younger millennial generation do not call themselves Dalits. Often we can misracialize them. They're Buddhists and we're calling them Dalits. But actually, when they've converted to Buddhism, many of that younger generation have let go of that identification of Dalit. He is a PhD student at the Indiana University School of Social Work and has lived and worked in the USA for 10 years. He is the former director of Nagarjuna Training Institute, Nagpur, India, which trains thousands of young people in Buddhist and Dr. Mbeka studies and continues work with them as well as other non-profit organizations in India. Viveka. Viveka has worked for 30 years for social, racial, economic, environmental and gender justice and is one of my heroines, I will say. She specializes in guiding transformational process on race, equity, culture change, conflict resolution, vision and strategy. Former chair of the San Francisco Buddhist Center, she is respected, seen in meditation with Triratna. She is the president board of the Karina USA. Maxo Gaston, and apologies if I have mispronounced your name, a civil rights attorney and director of diversity, equity and inclusion at the University of Notre Dame Law School. Max recently and successfully challenged the governor of Florida for violence of the First Amendment. His work with New Delhi-based Human Rights Law Network, where he advised Indian Supreme Court advocates on public interest litigation matters involving caste discrimination and the violation of constitutional rights. He is a board member of Karana USA. Samaya Shri. Samaya Shri is a human humanitarian global leader and change maker. She has worked as a senior leader driving growth for the United Nations and the International Rescue Committee and cumulatively raised over $2.5 billion. So we need Samaya Shri. She is chair of the Tree Ratna New York, New Jersey Sangha and president of my Sangha Vancouver. She is a former trustee of Carina UK and a co-founder of Carina USA. A lot of wisdom on this panel. Okay, so we have several questions. As you know, you've got three minutes each to respond to the questions. So please have a timer in front of you so that I don't have to kind of come in and say stop. 
Okay, so the first question, and I will posit this to Haresh. Haresh, what is the equivalent of caste in the United States? What would you say is the equivalent to caste in the United States, Haresh? Thank you, Vimal Sara and everyone. My experience is mostly based on uh, living in Midwest. So for those who don't know Midwest, it is the central part of America, East and West, and the middle part, middle portion is the Midwest. That is what I have spent most of my time. And based on that, I can say, since I'm coming from India, I know the social hierarchy and stratification because of caste. I was able to see how people see race or ethnicity as central to their identity. So that is what I first noticed it very clearly. In recent years, I would say it was, and it is still more common for people to express their racist or racially insensitive views and derogatory words. So that is my personal observation. And I would say it is mostly against the black and non-white people. So that is very much there. And people are, I would say, not shying to use certain words and So that is clearly visible and that just reminds me about India and the caste-based discriminations and discriminatory practices in India. For most people, I think it is difficult to recognize that racial remarks and racial treatment makes it very difficult for people to work on themselves and progress in their lives. So it is kind of real obstacle for people to overcome and deal with those emotions. And it triggers people to send people in depression or negative emotions. So it is really making negative impact of some of my friends I'm interacting and talking to since several years in different places, different cities. I see this as a common theme, how the racial remarks and treatment is impacting people negatively, especially non-white people. Yeah, so I can very much see and relate with my own experience in India. Thank you. I'm going to move on to Viveka with the same question. I think helpfully, there's a book published by a Black author and New York Times reporter, Isabel Wilkerson, with the title Cast, and I put a link into it. So I feel like there's such little time here. I'm going to ask people to do their own work beyond this call this morning to learn more. She says, Cast is the granting or withholding of respect, status, honor, attention, privileges, resources, benefit of the doubt, and basic human kindness to someone on the basis of their perceived rank or standing in a hierarchy. And what some people call racism could be seen as merely one manifestation of the degree to which we have internalized the larger American caste system. Yeah, so very much like what Haresh is saying. So yeah, in the first part, we heard about marginalized groups. And in the U.S., Black communities and people of Indigenous descent, Native Americans, have some of the most the greatest disparities in what we could call living a life with dignity, a fair life in our country. This happens in all sorts of realms. Again, I'll put a link which you can educate yourself with, which talks about how there are systems that keep this in place. And so this mirrors what we heard about India, but there are laws, there are policies that keep this in place. One obvious one is housing policy, the history of housing policy. And you just simply could not get a loan as a Black family to live in certain neighborhoods. And these were intentional structures. Yeah. So this extends to housing, distribution of wealth, employment, government surveillance, immigration policy, health, COVID, infant mortality. Yeah. Every walk of every aspect of our lives 
And the impacts are intersectional. So you could say that while we see the biggest impacts in Black and Indigenous communities, it also includes other people of color. But the more intersections, like a Black woman has even intersections of disadvantage or suppression of systems on that person, or if you're queer or gender non-conforming. So I think that this is how we, we see this in the U.S. context, in Canada as well, you know, seeing a similar phenomenon. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Okay, Samaya Shri, over to you to answer this question. Thank you. Wow, I'm so enjoying hearing what other people have to say, and I'll try and be additive. I've had the privilege several times of spending time in India, visiting some of our amazing projects. And, you know, one of the things that people have said to me while we've been starting Caroline USA is, but how can you take some of those core insights from the work that happens in South Asia and bring them to America because the context is so different? And on the surface, in some ways, that might be true, particularly when I think about India and the United States, however, just to take those two countries, they have an enormous amount in common as well. And I think the thing that strikes me most about both of them, and you just touched on this, Viveka, is the incredible disparity of wealth, privilege, power, access to justice, access to equal opportunities that takes place in both of those countries. And that same incredible dislodging experience you can have if you visit a city like Mumbai and you see incredible wealth and incredible poverty and exclusion next to each other, you can have that same experience if you go to the Upper East Side of New York. And those of us who live in America may have horrified. I wonder if we're still as shocked and horrified by that when we see it playing out in our own cities in the United States. And I think the other thing I just want to call forwards, and it's already been touched on, is in particular the impact on women and the role of women in the disproportionate impact that these disadvantages, lack of access to equality, lack of access to resources has on women and communities. And as we've seen from those amazing videos we've seen this morning, the disproportionate and incredibly important role that women can play as well in raising their communities up. I work in global reproductive rights at the moment. I work with UNFPA. And just to share one shocking statistic that some of you might know, is an African-American woman giving birth in an American hospital is eight times more likely to die in childbirth than a white American woman. Now, what godly reason is there for that? You know, that figure in itself tells us a whole story about how American society functions at the moment and disproportionate access to equality and to resources. So that's what we're facing. Thank you. And, and just to say it's the same in the UK, those statistics. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure I haven't seen the statistics for Canada. OK, Maxa, over to you. You know, I agree with what everyone has said fully and wholeheartedly. So I'll just try to add my own perspective on it. I do think that the equivalent to caste in the United States is race. And two of the many parallel lines that I think run between both casteism and racism are A, colorism, and B, the overvaluation of Eurocentric features and Western ideals. Just like untouchability, 
racism in America has rationalized and maintained a vast pool of cheap labor for the wealthy and the powerful. And in addition to the points that everyone else was raising, you know, racism like casteism has blocked access to justice in the justice system. And in the face of things like institutionalized hatred, police shootings, violent crimes, delicate atrocities, you know, that go overlooked by government officials and police officers, you're born into your race, just like you're born into your caste. And I think that in the Indian subcontinent, those who are identified as Dalits are akin in many ways, like everyone was saying, to Black people in the United States. While Black people are at the bottom of the racial hierarchy, people who, you know, Hinduism classifies as Dalits are viewed as so low in, in the Indian society that they can't even be said to be at the bottom of the caste system because they're technically outcast from that system. Both concepts have these major opposition leaders. In India, you've got Dr. Ambedkar, Black people. We have Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. And historically, there are parallels between these concepts as well that I think are really interesting. So really quickly, for instance, the notion of untouchability, you know, that idea that Dalits are the unclean other bears a striking resemblance to segregation and the legal doctrine of separate but equal in the United States. So in the 1950s, the famous Black actress and singer Dorothy Dandridge was invited to perform at a prominent hotel in Las Vegas. And when she was told that the swimming pool was whites only because Blacks were unclean, she became so enraged that she got in her bathing suit, walked to the pool and dipped a single toe into the pool in front of all of the white swimmers. And the hotel was so disgusted at what she did that they drained the entire pool because it had been tainted by the touch of a Black woman. In a similar way, in 1927, Dr. Ambedka led a peaceful protest to allow Dalits to use water in a public water tank that Dalits were being denied access to by other Hindus. The law required, however, that Dalits should have access to it. And so due to the mere act of the Dalits drinking the water from the public tank, the upper caste Hindus carried out a purification ritual to undo the pollution caused by the public water source being sullied by untouchables. So I think the bottom line here is that the problem of racism, just like the problem of untouchability, in many ways, these two concepts are identical twins. They might carry different faces, but ultimately they share the same DNA. Thank you. Oh, gosh, there's, there's so much I could say. And I, I think the one thing what is really important to say is that four of us on this screen have experienced untouchability. On a particular level. In my life, I've experienced that, okay? And I think sometimes people think, especially here in North America, it's something of the past that we as Black and Asian people don't experience that. But let me tell you, we do experience that. Okay, time is clocking on and we want to hear from these wise people on the panel. So the next question is, from your experience of the US context, and knowledge of Karuna's work. What role do you think Karuna USA can play in addressing issues of exclusion and marginalization? And I think I'll go to you first, Samai Shri, as this is part of your baby, you and Ananta bringing this in. So I'm gonna to come to you first. Thank you. So my first answer is going to be, we don't know. And that's really important for us to say that we're entering a period which starts today of listening and learning and discovering. As we've already heard, the issues are enormous, but how our particular contribution can be part of moving the dial on some of these issues is going to be a very exciting and important part of the next few months of our work. And we are going to be in deep learning mode. I think what we do know or the ideas that we hold on to 
quite strongly are that there's something about the approach and philosophy of Karen R that will be really important here of humility of knowing that there's already incredible work happening, incredibly important work, amazing projects, amazing grassroots organizations. And our approach will be to find them, to partner with them, to stand behind sometimes, to stand alongside sometimes and support them in what they're doing. So I think there's gonna be something about how we come alongside those groups and how we identify them. I do want to, again, just call out the incredible importance of gender in that, you know, that's, as you've seen from the videos today, the transformative power of women within these communities, women leaders, women participants, and the importance of getting the benefits of the transformational work to reach women in those communities is something that not just Karen are many many organizations that are in the business of social transformation have realized how critical and central gender is so I'm hoping that gender will also be a very important part of our contribution in North America. Thank you. Over to you next Suresh. What I see is because of social injustice and discrimination and because of racism similarly like casteism people are with wounded minds they need healing and there is guilt there is anger experience of suffering all of that is there as if it is hidden but may not be seen on surface level but it is very much there so if we establish dukkha suffering as a suffering from racial and caste related issues i think there would be definitely the way for us as a buddhist practitioners and the suffering is residual because of some historical reasons and since centuries and some suffering is because of something is ongoing. So residual and ongoing, those I think are the two characters of the racial or caste related sufferings. And people are not comfortable in talking about that on general at public level. They are talking maybe within their homes or within the close circles and people don't have the language to use to talk about these issues openly and safe environment and it is not about ideology or philosophy but it is more like personal experiences so i think perhaps corona usa can create or help its future partners to create such platforms or opportunities for people to share their pain, suffering, to ventilate, to catharsize, and then how to overcome these obstacles. I think that would be a really good thing. Perhaps to start with the Macharis and the Mamitras here in USA and Canada, how they could use the language and how could they be trained to talk on these issues. If we are able to train those Dhammacharis and Dhammamitras to initiate certain dialogues on these lines, I think that would be a great contribution. Of course, it could be a long time for people to understand and then express themselves. But I would really think that that would be a great thing to contribute because we need people, healers, compassionate healers and people who can build bridges, who can come together and fill the gap. And I don't see those people here. At least I haven't seen those who can talk on compassionate lines. So that kind of people, I think those are really needed. Thank you. Maxo, over to you next. Thank you, Vimasara. You know, I agree with a lot of what has been said. 
from my perspective, I think that Karina's work to empower marginalized individuals from caste-based communities is in a lot of ways directly transferable to marginalized communities in the U.S. context. Karina empowers individuals with funding and resources and works alongside them to foster a sense of equity that allows people and societies to thrive against social and institutional circumstances that unfairly hold them down. I think that that premise fits really perfectly in helping to break down really toxic institutions that we see in the United States, like white supremacy, the white savior industrial complex, toxic masculinity, the prison industrial complex, the absence of women and minorities in crucial positions of power and employment, the high school to prison pipeline that indoctrinates one in five black men in America. Karina's focus on these three major pillars of education, gender equality, livelihood are exactly the efforts that are well-placed to address those sort of problems and build healthy environments for marginalized people who often exist in a world that works against them and kind of leads them astray. I think in the United States specifically right now, Karina is exactly what we need. And by that, I mean, Karina is compassion in action. We're living in a context of a global reckoning on race. You know, we're seeing people's civil rights and civil liberties being challenged overtly in a lot of ways and aggressively. We're still in the midst of a global pandemic. And one of the points that Yuvi Mosara and Viveka as well mentioned is that the health crisis affects marginalized communities, the intersectionality of that. Compassion on a grassroots level doesn't just address all of these systems of systemic oppression. It also confronts the mental health consequences of that oppression and reinforces mental wellness by creating conditions for support and a supportive environment. So that idea of building good health and support by breaking down these systems that are by design set to create injustice, I think is exactly what the United States needs right now. And I think that Karina can do that. Thank you. Thank you. Over to you, Viveka. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said so far. I feel like one thing we can also do is really do our own work in looking at not doing this work from a place that replicates superiority or power over others and how money is exchanged. Yeah. So I think that that quote from earlier where Ambedkar's value of an example of an engaged Buddhist, I was really struck by that. That's one of the things that Ambedkar has given our world and you know lives on beyond his historical lifetime. I think that one of the things that Karna can do is help us live into that. And that's a process where I know from my own work of undoing the way my mind has been structured by the system I live in has been the same as a Buddhist practice. And I don't know how we can separate those things, you know, that we actually work on how we have been socially conditioned. So I invite us into that so that we can truly be in grassroots partnership. You know, and I'm sure we're always learning what it means to be in right relationship. I think that part of that right relationship is looking to support BIPOC-led organizations to really be committed to that. In that way, we also support leadership development. We see people as resourceful whole people that are leading in their communities. Yeah, and I really urge us to start somewhere. I feel like the gift of the possibility of what it looks like to be an engaged Buddhist in our world is so much is conditioning us to overwhelm, to apathy, even people that might not need to be convinced that there are huge disparities that are worth working on can often be overwhelmed and not know what to do. So one of the habits that keeps us from changing the status quo is perfectionism. Sometimes it's described as a dominant culture habit. So we don't have to be perfect. We can be learners. We can learn as we can go. We can be accountable to learning with the communities we hope to partner with. And we should just start somewhere. Money is energy. 
money is a form of energy. And sometimes we hear, oh, you know, like from a, a standpoint of individualism, if you had invested that thousand dollars in your retirement fund, you'd have so much by now. Well, imagine if we took the energy of that money, invested it towards transforming our world to the kind of world I know I long for a world of dignity and connection versus isolation and despondency. So I feel like that's a great gift to all of us. And it's a healing gift. Thank you. I just really hear a strong call for action. And it's interesting at the moment we're hearing, let's be an echo sattva, let's be an eco sattva. Well, we can be an engaged sattva. <laughs> let's be an engaged sattva. You know, I just really want to remind us as well, just that connection, that remembering that the Dalit Panthers modeled themselves on the Black Panthers and that really strong connection. And the other thing is, I think also part of the work is for all of us to begin to look at our biases. And many of you might know of this. And even if you've done it, it's really great to do it again in six months time and six months time and do the race one and do the gender one and just really see where you are in a spectrum and begin to make the unconscious conscious. So we are bang on time. This is amazing. Thank you, speakers. I cannot believe it. Wow. It's a miracle. The bodhicitta is arising. Okay, calm down, Vimlasar. Okay, so we are asking you to do some of your own work. You've listened to us. You've heard from Karina. You've heard from our Indian siblings. And you've heard from our North American siblings. And so we are inviting you to just explore what stood out for you. Yeah. And what would you like to know more about? So what stood out for you and what would you like to know more about? I want to say thank you very much to the panel and over to, I think, Ananta. Thanks, Vimalasara. I'm just going to field some of the questions. I really like the one that came in from the San Francisco Center. So are the projects going to be centered in New York? Will there be bases around North America connecting to environmental justice groups? So Samaya Shree. I wanted to pass that one to you. It's a complete coincidence that at the moment it looks a little bit New York centric because Ananta and I are both in this region, although of course I live in New Jersey now, not New York. So we very, very much see this as at the very least a USA initiative, although I'm excited that we have siblings in Canada and Mexico who are interested in this conversation. But it's very much a United States initiative and actually I think we actively want to make sure that we connect with and work with people who are in different parts of the country. I think that's actually very, very important for the success of Karanai USA, that we don't become a sort of East Coast thing. And, you know, that's both in terms of people who want to volunteer to work with us. I hope as we grow our trustees, that will be true. I hope as people join us to work with us that our right livelihood will be pan-continental and that we'll find ways of making that work. And I would imagine when we get to the point of doing programming, we'll also be very, very deliberate about geographical spread. Yeah, I'm seeing there's questions about what criteria will Kearney USA be looking at with partnering. And I wonder if it'd be a good time to talk about actually there's going to be a thoughtful process of design with bringing in a consultant to help us think about a way to start and to have a clear set of values guiding us and to be learning from what's happening in the ecosystem around us. So I guess it's a little early days, but certainly we're also going to ask this consultant to learn from the Karna model because a lot has been worked out, has already been pointed out, that's transferable. 
Thank you. And that's a really good plug to say that person could be you. You might be a strategy specialist and know very much about this sector, or you might know somebody who could fit that bill. So we have an announcement on the website and an RFP that is out. So if you think of anyone who might be suitable, please send them our way. Someone was asking, what can we do? And we'll come to that in just a few minutes because we'll share some actions that we, we will invite you to do. I think there's something here that came up from our group that I could offer. Glad we're doing this in North America. Education is everything. Slightly overwhelmed by the scale of the task in the USA. How do we know where to start? So, yeah, I just noticed in the chat, there was this kind of resonance with being able to not fall into perfectionism. So I wonder about that, just that, you know, maybe as practitioners, how do we work with overwhelm? This is like a core teaching we have is going from reactive mind to creative mind. Yeah. And one thing I love that I learned once about ourselves is that we can't help how anxious we feel. This is sort of preconditioned in us. It's part of our karma vipaka, I could say. But when we feel anxious or overwhelmed, we can dial up our curiosity. So I just invite us all to be really curious about what's possible. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll add to that, that I think when Samaya Shri and I have been brainstorming between ourselves, and now we're taking that out as well, it's I definitely feel that the excitement of the possibility as well as the sense of overwhelm and, you know, what can we do? So we definitely want to be very ambitious and there's lots of areas that we could go into, but obviously we have to think very carefully about what we can do. So Shri? Yeah, I'd just like to add, absolutely. And yes, we've been on that journey many, many times, haven't we, Ananta? I think from the where do we start perspective, my response to that, and I already see this in the amazing work of KNR UK and KNR Germany, is we start with other human beings. We don't have to work out the formula for transforming all the institutional biases and prejudices and inequities in the United States. We can start by investing in remarkable human beings and helping them to have agency around their ideas and their philosophies and their convictions. You get behind people like that, they will have ideas about what to do next if they're given the support to get there. So that's part of my answer to the question of where do we start is we start with other human beings. Samashri, can I just say one function of racism is it keeps us in our lanes, you know? One of the things I've been doing is just doing a lot of work in the world where people are coming together to work for social change. There are plenty of people that are already moving great ideas. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? There's no shortage of people to partner with who are not only working on their own, but actually working well with others. So I think one of the gifts is we can learn more about all the great work that's happening. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you. So we're going to move into our closing now. And I want to really warmly and from my heart really thank the speakers today who have so generously offered their time, given their time, really given of themselves and made this a really inspiring event to be part of. And I'm really excited, actually. I continue to be excited to be part of this and looking forward to seeing where it can go. I feel like it's just incredible to witness the bringing together of our broad international community in the UK, Germany, the US, Canada. I know there's people on here from Mexico too, and probably other places. It's amazing. It's amazing to be reflecting on these problems, drawing parallels and connections and considering what impact we are having and can continue to have in the world. 
I started off by introducing five points. So those five were, we are here, Karen, our USA exists, which is what this event has been about, that we will support work in South Asia. And we've heard all about that from Padmadaka, Pratibar, and Sanganath. We'll support work in the USA, which is what we've been exploring for the last hour or so. And that we will be a tree ratna led organization, which we've been modeling. Yeah, we've been modeling that today, all of us through our participation in this event. Fifthly, and finally, and very importantly, is that we will mobilize resources in the USA. And we have started that by focusing on you guys. We're focusing on Tree Ratna. So I'm going to hand over to Samaya Shree, who is going to share what this can look like. Thank you, Ananta. And just to echo your excitement and inspiration and how being in this amazing company for the last two hours has just lifted me to another level of enthusiasm about this amazing adventure that we're going to have together as a community. It's just going to be incredible. I was also particularly inspired by Kea and her saying, no time to sit. I think that needs to be our new motto. There is no, no time to sit. And I just wanted to say one other thing before I start to talk to everyone about the money and just feeling this deep sense of gratitude for our community sitting here today and how at our best you know, really beautiful things can happen when we come together. So I'm feeling huge gratitude to our founders and teachers sitting here with all of you. Yeah, very moved by that. So we're launching a fundraising appeal. And as you already heard at the beginning, we need to raise about $100,000 in the next two to three months in order to get Karen R USA off to a really strong start. And what that means is to resource us to keep moving forwards with some of the exciting things that we talked about and to be able to start supporting our amazing Karen, our partners in South Asia. So we're launching this $100,000 appeal. And this year, we are particularly looking to the community, the Tree Ratner community in the United States to support us in raising that money. That won't be true every year. Our plans are to gradually expand our field of connection. We're going to have other launches into other communities. We're going to be reaching into the diaspora community. We're going to be reaching into the wider faith communities in this country. We're going to be reaching out to people who, for other reasons, are interested in work to enhance social justice in North America. But for now, we're starting with our home community and Tree Ratna. So we need to raise $100,000. We're really hoping that you've been convinced and inspired by today and that you will think really really hard about a gift that you might be able to make to us either a cash gift or if it's your preference to make a monthly gift that would make a huge difference as well in particular we know there are people in our community who are already generous philanthropists and will make a humanitarian gift for example at the end of the year you may have you know a deep commitment to overseas humanitarian work or work in another philanthropic area that means a lot to you we'd really ask that you consider this year whether you would consider making a gift of that nature to us so the link is available on the website we also want you to talk to your friends and to your community so 
please tell your friends, your families, please talk to your sangers, please talk to other donors. Ananta and I had a dry run of this on Tuesday night with our local sanger and somebody went into their local furniture store and persuaded the owner of the furniture store to support Karen Arm, which I thought was fantastic. So please just feel confident and excited to talk to other people about what's happening with Karen Arm USA and see if you can engage them point them towards our website maybe give a talk at your sangha night or invite one of us to come and give a talk at your sangha night and has been setting up all our lovely social media accounts so please follow us on social media because we're hoping to build our digital profile and we really have big plans over the next couple of years to do digital fundraising so help us to build our algorithm and get some traffic and get some energy behind our social media platforms And please think about whether you would like to be involved in any other way with what we're doing. We are going to be looking for more trustees next year to join our wonderful and very small group at the moment. We're going to be looking for volunteers. And when we have the resources ready, we're going to be looking for people who want to actually join the team and have jobs within Karen USA. So please start thinking in 2022 or in 2023, is there room in my life? Could I see this being an important part of my altruistic practice in the future? And if the answer to that is maybe please get in touch with us. We would love to talk to you. And as we said earlier on, geography is not a factor. Yeah. And then the last thing is we've got a newsletter. So if you go on our website, you can put your name down for the newsletter. So I'll just end again by saying it is really important that we raise this money because raising this money is what will set us up to do all of the other things that we're going to do that will make us less dependent on the Tree Ratner community. So We really need a surge from Trey Ratner in the next couple of months. And I guess I just want to end by saying thank you. And in particular, I think the only person who's not being really thanked today is Ananta, who's been an absolutely amazing thought partner, colleague, champion, email chaser. And we wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for Ananta. So huge gratitude and respect to you, Ananta, for your leadership on this. Thank you so much, Mayashree. Appreciate that. And there is someone else to thank, though, who is Chandra Dasa uh, and the Buddhist Centre Online team, who's been incredible behind the scenes setting this up. So it really would not have happened, or it wouldn't have happened nowhere near as smoothly as it has without their support. So thank you so much. And again, really big thank you to our speakers, Fimla Sarafa panel facilitating today. Yeah, amazing. And thank you all for showing up, helping us to launch in earnest. So as Vimala Sara said, the Bodhisattvas are with us. So again, thank you all for coming and keep in touch. Looking forward to collaborating with you over the coming months and years. We hope you enjoyed that fantastic conversation with Karna. Really inspiring, really moving to hear about all the work that's happening in Europe and also now in the USA with an amazing project ahead. That you can help with. We'll put the links in the show notes so that you can get all the information you need to help Karna do their work. As usual, if you're listening to this, that means you know how to get your podcasts already, but many people do not. And the world is absolutely awash with podcasts. So please, if you enjoy our episodes, these great Dharma conversations, these great evocations of life as a Buddhist, 
applying Buddhist principles to all of our lives, all of our friendships, our sense of community, our sense of participating as citizens of the world, online, offline, everywhere, please leave a good review. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It will help us reach a wider audience. And we'll be back soon with a further episode of the podcast. But for now, goodbye. <laughs>